My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The invasion, the visitor, the encounter, the message, the predator, the capture, the stranger, the end, the secret, the android, the forgotten, the react, the chain, the unknown, the escape, the underground, the decision, the slow departure, the second discovery, the proposal, the conspiracy, the separation, the deception, the suspicious existence, the extreme sacrifice, the diversion, and the beginning. And my name is Joyce. That's not my real name. My real name is Avon DePeaser. But I can't tell you that <laughs> either. Crap. <laughs> you could tell us where you live, though, right? Don't worry, Joyce. We'll edit it out later. <laughs> Wink. No, there's um, about five of us in, in this part of the state, so I should. should. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a clue. Welcome. We are so excited to have you on. You've been leaving such oh. delightful comments on our website. Well, thank you. You yes. are my favorite podcast right now, so. <laughs> That's such an honor. I've listened to so many Animorphs podcasts, oh. so it's it's. I really love just like the general mood and how analytical you get. That is that is our strength. <laughs> Talking for three hours about <laughs> yes. a book that took us an hour and a half to read. <laughs> so, Very on brand. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into Animorphs? Did you read them growing up? What's your Animorph story? I did read them growing up. My first one was book twelve, where Rachel becomes an, a crocodile. Ooh, oh, I saw that in the grocery store, and I was like, I need some of that. <laughs> and then, like, I never stopped. I, I I read them long after everyone else I knew who read them stopped reading them. I'm one of those people who's never horrified by the morphs. Not nice. even in 27. Yes. I just thought, <laughs> this is cool. I like how there are people who saw the covers and were like, yes, that. And people who saw the covers and were like, I'm never looking at this again in my life. <laughs> right? I love the covers. I just can't deal with, like, the bones crunching. <laughs> fair. So fair. And have you read them again as an adult? Way too many times, probably. Okay. Ooh, excellent. Like, I fell out of them for a while in my probably early 20s when I went, oh, that was kid stuff. Like, it, it was my introduction to, like, serialist fiction, but also mm-hmm. there was a point when I got, like, weird about it and I was like, I thought, like, they were too episodic despite being serialized. And mm. I just was like, oh. eh. and And I was an idiot who, like, gave mine away and now I wish I had <gasps> it again. Oh, no. Now only the That's internet so exists to remind me. Of what I once had. <laughs> How did you get back into the Animorphs? For a start, it was probably through uh, Poetry's Demorphing series. Oh, yeah, nice. That reminded me of all these things I liked. And then I was for a while, I was like, oh, but this, that's so much better than the series. And then, like, it, as I started getting this resurgence, that kind of started with, like, Morph Club, I think. Mm-hmm. I just got reacquainted and was like, oh, wait, actually, these are good. <laughs> Largely good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> they are good. <laughs> Animorphs. Good, actually. <laughs> Mostly. Largely good. Here. So uh, what are your feelings? What are your general feelings on Fissar? I love it because I love all of these uh, um, Chronicles books because I love pain. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good way to say it. <laughs> I love that all the Chronicles books, they have like a step back from the, from the rest of the series. They show more context. They show different views. They show like this. Uh, it's called xenofiction, just like looking at looking at humanity from an alien perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And this says a lot of that. Yeah, and it's like it's so, in my opinion, so much better than the Esplan chapters in Hork-Bajir Chronicles. Oh my gosh! Really I just love it. I love the view of the Yurks. I, I can't wait to talk about what it all means. What did you guys? What? Yeah, great. What's your take on Visser? Uh, it is. So many things that I wanted, and so many things I did not want. Oh, um, 
I really yeah. enjoyed getting more of the backstory um, and learning more about Marco's mom mm-hmm. and both the Yerk and the mom mm-hmm. are great characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the Chronicles books. I think they're always really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, uh, but it's also because I like pain. And <laughs> these are full of pain. Yes. This is the one that for me, I'm like, is it a middle grade book? Mm. I, that is in my notes like six times. Yeah. yeah. We, should, we should get into that a lot more. But this is the one that I'm like, how did anyone ever think this is going to be okay? I, my, like, my review on Goodreads is one sentence, and it is, when exactly do we think Apple Grant forgot they were writing for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Jenny? Did you... I liked it a lot. This has been my favorite Chronicles book on the reread. Uh, I really stood up. I didn't remember most of what happened. Like, I remembered the stuff that happened Mm. in the present day with Marco and his mom. I didn't remember. I remembered almost none of the backstory. Yeah. I mean, to the middle grade point, like, I find it much more chilling reading it as an adult than I did as a kid for some reason. It might be interesting to reflect on that or not, but I think I was just reading for, like, the plot twists and stuff. Mm. And it's like... I think a pretty good job of a a very, very unsympathetic protagonist oh, yeah. that you want to root for for sort of a lot of plot contingency reasons, yeah. but who you never really are that sympathetic to. Absolutely. I, I really like the portrayal of Visser One. I identified a lot with, with Ava, with Marco's mom, yes. with her host, yes. and... Uh, yeah. Her attitude towards it, where in the middle you're like, oh, wait, she has these like redeeming like values and feelings and stuff, and then the end you're like, no. Actually, no. <laughs> she loves strongly, but it's not a good love. She no, doesn't do, no. yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Okay, so do you want to try give a shot at um, a plot summary, Gray? I don't, I, but I will. <laughs> do you want like 90 seconds? I think you can do it I in 60. Give me give me 90 seconds for this <laughs> okay. one. Okay. It's a okay. little longer. Yeah, we have a time matrix. Right, we can use it whenever we want. All right, this book starts with a prologue uh, that describes Visser 1 as Marco's mom in the moments before she disappears for the first time. So you get kind of a little bit of that story to remind us of where we are and who Visser 1 is. And then the framing device for the rest of the book is that Visser 1 is on trial before the Yerkes Council of 13 after the events of Book 30. And Visser 3 has been holding her captive and is serving as prosecutor. So the the whole framing device is just this trial where the Council of 13 is trying to find out whether Visser 1 is a traitor and for how many reasons she is a traitor. (laughs) And she is trying to show that actually Visser 3 is the traitor. Courtroom drama. For all of those reasons, yeah. And so, so that's the framing device. Close to the beginning, Visser 3 pretends that the Animorphs attack this meeting uh, in the form of a very sad tiger and bear from, like, the zoo, maybe. Uh, so he can say he's beaten the Andalite bandits. He is, as always, very dumb. <laughs> so to defend herself, Visser 1 describes her history on Earth from the first encounter to this most recent mishap. And so interspersed between the trial, you get her whole backstory. And it's relatively complicated, so I'm going to give the 60-second summary of that, but I'm missing things, and I know that, so just, okay. So she starts off, she's a researcher looking for planets that contain class 5 species, which are able to be controlled, not overly aggressive, and exist in large numbers, so they can become a new species of controllers for the Yerks. She finds Earth and the humans, in part because of Lauren and Chapman, 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Question. I mean, entirely because entirely of Lauren because Chapman. of Lauren and Chapman. Yeah. They showed her where to look. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so part of how she tells this story is actually just a memory file that has been uploaded to the Council of Thirteen or something, um, which shows how she and a subordinate Yerk stole a ship, I think, and then they went to Earth and they crash landed in the middle of a conflict in the Middle East. She infests first a soldier from the losing side who explains that uh, the, the big power in the world is America. So then they go to America and watch a lot of television and uh, <laughs> find out that where they should really go as the nexus of power is Hollywood. So then Visser One and the subordinate Yerk uh, infest a TV producer and a starlet and live in those forms for a little while then eventually kill those forms. And there's a there's a chunk of her memory that's lost, a Visser 1's memory that's lost. She never reported. She didn't call back. And that's where Visser 3 hopes to kind of catch her in being a traitor that she kind of fell in love with Earth and uh, betrayed the Yerks. And it turns out that during that missing chunk of time, she infested a scientist and the subordinate Yerk infested somebody else and maybe another scientist. It's unclear to me. Uh, the two of these humans fall in love. And the Yerks kind of also fall in love. They get married and they have kids. They have twins. And so we discover that part of Visser One's motivations for doing a slow takeover of Earth by kind of infiltrating the planet is because she wants to make sure that her children have a chance to survive. And that is in contrast to Visser 3, who just wants to go in with a bunch of bombs and, like, take over. As the trial progresses, Visser 1 and Ava, Marco's mom, come to a sort of detente because Ava is explaining, is trying to help Visser 1 have this peaceful, more peaceful takeover. And they realize that in order to discredit Visser 3, they need to get the Animorphs, the real ones now, to come and attack this meeting to show that Visser 3 was trying to trick the council. And so this is the phone call that we get at the end of book 35. Marco's mom calls him and, and they talk and she says, listen, you have to come and um, this is going to help. And so the animals show up, they attack the meeting, they kidnap Marco's mom, and they manage to convince the Yerk to uninfest her briefly. Marco and his mom have an actual conversation for the first time, and it's very sweet and very touching, and we'll talk about it a bunch. And then Marco's mom basically convinces him that she needs to become reinfested. Fine. Uh, so she does. <laughs> they go back to the council, and we learn that the way Visser One's time on Earth ended was she tried to kill her host, uh, the scientist. The scientist instead managed to get away with the kids. So the kids are still out there somewhere, and part of this whole thing is that Visser One also, at the same time, was going back and forth between infesting the scientist and infesting uh, somebody who has three names, whatever. Lord David Altman. Lord David Altman, thank you, um, who becomes a cult leader of sorts and starts the sharing. And that is how the sharing kind of gets its, its foundation. She steals a bunch of money, starts the sharing, and becomes this powerful leader who's inviting people into the inner circle so that they can get voluntary controllers. And then at the end, the Council of Thirteen says, okay, uh, Visser One, Visser Three, you're both traitors. You've both been sentenced to slow and painful death by Candrona Ray starvation, but we're going to commute your sentence because you are our best leaders, which, <laughs> yikes, you guys, yikes. Uh, you are our best leaders. We need Visser Three on Earth 
continuing this battle, and we're going to send Visser 1 to another planet to start that takeover in the hopes that she will be able to be so good at that job that the Andalites will attack that planet first and leave Earth to continue to be infested under the auspices of Visser 3. Probably some other stuff happens. <laughs> that was a great yeah, but summary. that was great, yeah. And exactly 60 seconds. You didn't even need the extra time. <laughs> great, good job, me. <laughs> So much happens in this book. Yeah. I think I missed a bunch of stuff, but yikes. Yeah, you did a great job. We'll talk about all the backstory. Great. It's, I mean, it's like her yeah, whole life. Yeah, like what do we, do we pick up where 35 left off? Do we talk about the past? <laughs> great, do we what talk did you about do when you the... read that last part of 35? Oh um, yeah, you haven't heard that episode yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I said what a lot. Uh, and then I argued about what could possibly have possessed her to make that phone call. Oh, yeah. yeah. So did this did this meet your very high standards for leaving a voicemail? Yes. <laughs> I had that question in my notes. Yes. I was like, great. Do you, I, I do you support it now? I got upset about her leaving a voicemail because I thought that was a very dumb decision. But it, it turns out dumb, actually but... it was her only option. So yeah. fine. Yeah. She was like about to be killed. It was, you know. She was in the bathroom while, while people were pounding on it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, it met my standards. Uh, it was a good plan. One of my favorite things about this is the flashes we get of Marco's mom, mm. who is, as as I posited in an earlier book, where Marco gets oh, his yeah. kind of logistics brain and, and his sneakiness and skills and stuff that all comes from his mom. And she is so damn proud of him. Yeah. And she straight out sweet. says that in this book. She's like, you know, no, my son like sees the... The bright yeah. color line, basically. He got that from me. And the, yeah. there's the bit where Edris is in over her head with uh, when she finds out that they know about the children and Visor 3 maybe has her children captive mm-hmm. and she's going to like cover for it. She's like, I better lie. I better say, say I that I killed children. them, yep. you know, because that otherwise how am I going to be loyal? And Ava does the thing that Marco does where she understands how it has to be in order for Visser 1 and thus Ava to get out of the situation. And she's like, no, 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 listen to me. I'm going to help you, my tormentor, (laughs) you know, the person who's controlling my mind. But like, listen, you have to be honest in this situation. And Edris listens and it's the right call. And so like Ava's really clever. For so much of the book, Edris is like on on the back foot. She's like constantly scrambling from place to place trying to get things done. She doesn't really have... She has some bigger plans, but she's not quite this methodical person that we keep thinking of her as. Yeah, she struck me a lot more as kind of like a, um, I don't know if like the magnificent bastard trope is quite the right word, but kind of like a little finger or a tattletale or like, a, I'm just going to talk my way out of a situation and I like living on the knife's edge. And I'm, I know that I'm always the smartest person in the room and that's how I get out of it. It's like keeping enough plates spinning. Yeah, at some point she says that victory depends on bluffing a lot. Yeah, she's very very ambitious and she is completely willing to risk everything for something that might not pan out hmm. and like just hope that she can get through it on boldness basically right she says the word bold a lot in this book right and she does she has the amazing you know turnabout moment at the beginning of the trial where she's like <laughs> in fact it is absurd that i am on trial for treason and my you know prosecutor is a traitor himself and then she points, points. and then she's like Pointing is an excellent human gesture. And I'm like, this is out of every like courtroom drama, Ace Attorney video game. It's like It's a good thing so she perfect. watched all that TV. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But yeah, so you're she's she thinks boldness 
is going to get her out of everything. She's sort of right, but she's also a total narcissist. It's, yeah. Well, it's she's wild. Not, she doesn't think boldness will necessarily get her out of everything. Visser 3 sort of has this, like, I must believe I'll always succeed swagger, where she is not, she's fairly realistic about it. She's like, I might die, but it's worth risking this, because if I succeed, I'll rule the whole galaxy. Yeah. Like, right. She's, she's got, right. like, that dose of realism that makes her a better leader than Visser 3. And yeah, and at one point she's even like, well, my choices are die now or die later. So, die later, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's got, we've talked about Marco having that, like, we were contrasting Marco and David with, like, Marco is very aware of reality. Like, not always perfectly, obviously, but, like, he is pretty accurate in his assessments of things. And Edris has a little bit of that in contrast to Visser 3, who's just like, if I make the loudest noise, everyone will listen to me. Yeah. And Visser 3 looks like such a buffoon in this book. <laughs> Obviously, that's some of Visser 1's perspective, but it's like, it talks about him like prancing and being like, <laughs> you know, gloating preemptively. And then when the. An alien smirk in his eyes. Right. When Edris finally realizes that the Council of 13 is kind of like looking for an excuse to, to let Visser 1 go, and how mm-hmm. Visser 3 suddenly is like way in over his head. <laughs> it's he it's his so tail good. Into the wall. Screaming. <laughs> oh, yeah, that must hurt so bad. I bet Alaron goaded him into it and was like taunting him. I hope Alaron was there the whole time going, you know, you're gonna die. You're gonna die. Yeah. It's gonna be great. It was so fun to see Ava and Edris, like that play of like the host influencing the Yurk. Yeah. I'm bummed we haven't really gotten that with Fisser 3 and Alaron. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a weird absence. I mean, sometimes I think that some of uh, Mr. Three's terrible sense of humor might be maybe Alan's sense of humor. And I see this That's one captain says, "Oh, Alan used to be a joker, and also <gasps> he has the sarcastic, the sarcastic edge." So at least like like back in um in thirty three, oh they, they, like, "Oh, now it takes two of you to open a door, huh?" <laughs> but, you know, I can imagine. So that. no, right? Because Alan can't help but make jokes. In no. Visser 3's head, and then Visser 3 steals the good ones and yeah. takes credit for them. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Visser 3 steals probably the bad ones, because Visser 3 doesn't have a good sense of what's funny and what's not. Yeah. So maybe Aloran makes lots of funny jokes, and then at key situations where he's like, Visser 3 would probably take this one, he makes a terrible joke. Oh my god, that's next level. <laughs> the real hero of the war. <laughs> I really liked, um, we're jumping all over the place, but I really liked when Ava was convincing Marco that she needed to be reinfested, and she's like, we all fight in our own way, and one thing that she's doing is letting Visser 1 use her body, and that will go towards preventing this all-out war on Earth. Yeah. Do we want to talk about that that final exchange? Oh, that's a a big place to jump into, but sure. It's the climax of the book. We can work backwards into all the (laughs) minutiae. What did, how did you feel reading this, Gray? I, I really liked, in particular, seeing this after after we see her with Marco. Marco was great in this book. Marco was so good in this This is, book. like, the best few of Marco we've had, I think. He was so good. And he was so tell effective. Me, okay. Because of his effectiveness? I totally agree with you, but I want to hear, like, I what mean, is it? It felt like everything he struggled with in book 30, where he was like, I can see sort of the the way out of this situation, and it's going to involve like these sacrifices on my part. I'm going to have to put all my feelings aside and deal with this thing. He really like was able to do that here. Yeah. He is the one who is negotiating with his mother's enslaver mm-hmm. and helping her out for the greater good and able to put aside his feelings on seeing his mom but only sort of like he also lets them show through at some point and like you do see that he 
does feel strongly and that he's just able to make the best decision for humanity. I was thinking, I was expecting at the end of 35 that he got this kind of like resolution just so that it could be undercut by a twist. Mm. But actually, I think a better read is that he has grown and he has matured because he's so on top of his game here, right? And we see like that first conversation where when he picks up the phone call at the end of 35, Uh you know, he's basically just like, one, I'm not helping you. I would Mm -hmm. be helping my mom if I think Mm -hmm. I'm going to get something out of this. I still will kill you, right? He's like able to say that. And him just being like, well, if you don't have a good enough plan for with us, then you're then you're screwed, and mm-hmm. I'm okay with that, right? And then later, he shows up with the whole team, and like mm-hmm. they're re- they're really letting him take charge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he draws on them for support when he needs them, but mm-hmm. he's mostly calling the shots. And I really like the way that he he identifies all of the possibilities where he says, okay, so we can you know we can help you, and this will happen. But mom, we can bring you somewhere. We can protect you we can keep you safe and you don't have to do this and um she says to him we we each fight this war in our own way and he just he completely gets it he doesn't argue he just accepts that and says okay here's what we're gonna do and he Mm -hmm. just lays it out and it is it's such a symbol of his growth but also what a mature person he's become and I particularly liked that in contrast to the first description that we get of him, um, because mm-hmm. uh, Visser one kind of weirdly, I thought at the time, weirdly goes to say goodbye as Marco is sleeping and says, um, already in his early adolescence, the stamp of failure was on him. He was too sweet natured and trusting to ever make it very far <laughs> in a hard world, a world that would only grow harder for humans. And that's what he was before the Yerk showed up. And between his mother dying um, and all that he's been through, he can instead be this real war leader who makes the tough calls and knows exactly how to provide them with um, the backup, like a recording in case Visser One turns on them. Like he has all of these plans and it's really hardened him in a way that's really difficult to see but also makes him such a good character yeah i feel like this is the end of an arc for him that i didn't Mm. kind of realize was Mm. happening but i feel like i've been reading marco's marco's investment in the fight is mostly about getting his family back together Mm. right that that's that's what draws him in in five and in seven he's tempted by the elemists offer that it's like, well, what if, like, could you even rescue my mom to yeah. take us to your paradise? Right, I'll right, say right. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's unclear if he's referencing the chi or the elemist yeah. here when he says, when he says to her, I, I could make it all okay. Like, he doesn't quite come out and say, like, I have a magical genie that will take us <laughs> to a different planet, because maybe Ava would have been like, okay, sure. But, like, the I, to me, I don't know what we'll get from Marco the the next time we get his point of view, but I really feel like in this conversation, he lets go of the fantasy of Mm -hmm. taking his mom and escaping and leaving. And I think that whatever is going to motivate him going forward, it's different. And he's like, he's really going to take on that. He's, he's, he's in the fight. Yeah. He's, he's going to see it through, right? Like that, it really feels like that is a turning point for him. And also in in his approach to his father's new relationship. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like that set him up for it. Yeah, he kind of gives up on that hope of his parents getting back together. And part of it is that his mom, like, tells him, 
your dad has to move on. He has to. He thinks I'm dead. He grieved. Let it basically let it go. Yeah. And I don't think Marco would have been able to deal with that in book five. Oh no. Um, but now he he accepts that and as you say, you know, lets that dream go. One thing there with that whole thing there is earlier in the books at several points, Edris is going um going on about how humans will fight forever, humans will never surrender, all this stuff. And then when uh Eve is talking to her son, she's saying that it's a nice sentiment, but humans do submit. Not all, not always, mm-hmm. but some, maybe most. Enough will submit mm. and the rest will be dead. Yeah. And I think that's just this very cold, very much more realistic view. Because like for all that we like to say that, you know, we'll we'll be free or we'll die, well, our history is kind of full of lots of people having to not do that. And that it's actually really interesting because Ava's one of the only adult adults mm. who has really mm. been able to talk about the war effort in this way, right? Yeah. We don't really get a unique perspective from Mr. Tidwell, and I'm struggling really. to think of anyone else. But yeah, no. it's very, like, the Animorphs, are very, they have a very teenager view of, like, well, screw the man, we can do this ourselves, <laughs> right? Like, they kind of want to... Open war would mean we could fight back. Yeah, they, they sort of, that, like, yeah. they they rise to the challenge because they, in some sense, they're not old enough to know any better. <laughs> yeah. right? So it's a really interesting way to think about it, that yeah. Ava's like, look, the Visser 3 version of the Yurk invasion could be a lot worse than you're thinking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. This is a little bit of a tangent, but just this is is really a great perspective on like these are children. Like you get the line like Ava is, is talking to Marco about like open war would be bad for humans, and I saw his face. I saw him consider a child, and he was now deciding the fate of Earth and the Yurk Empire. Mm-hmm. And Ted, you were just talking about how the fact that they're children means they don't know that they'll lose, and so they can fight and maybe win. And it, I'm just thinking of Ender's Game now, and this whole idea that like. Like, the premise of that book is that it has to be a child leading the war effort because they're, like, agile enough and they don't understand the cost. Mm. And it's sort of a different set of skills that, like, the children are being chosen for in that book. Like, it's it's not quite the same, like, we don't know we'll lose and so we can win. Yeah, although there, there, he's also not told the cost in Ender's Game. That's true. Like they don't that's explain true. to him that the game he's playing is the actual war. Yeah, but I think the implication is that an adult would never believe that. Yeah. And, yeah, this idea that, like, you can do all sorts of things because you don't know that you can't. Yeah, that's a good point. I also like that in that ending scene, I think this is probably the ultimate, maybe the Animorphs do want Visser 3 in charge moment. Because they are given the choice, Uh do we now want to depose Visser 1 and let Visser 3 take over? Jake spells it out. And right, Jake is like, actually, actually no. (laughs) Let's keep that guy in power. (laughs) <laughs> um, and Visser one's like, oh, well reasoned. This one surely is an Andalite. Oh no, it's another human. Oh my gosh, I keep underestimating oh, no, them. They're all humans. Yeah, I, actually, I was like, oh, Jake's making my argument that we want Visser three to be in charge. And then they do sort of decide against that. They're like, no, we want Visser one to be a counterbalance to Visser three because Visser three wants total war, yeah. and we yeah, yeah, yeah. aren't on board with that. And but, they end up getting Visser Three still in charge yes, of, of yeah. the war effort, but having but to use these being techniques. being balanced by the Council of Thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's forced to play by her playbook. Yeah. yeah. Which he's not any good at. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that he'd be good at any playbook well, somehow. He, but yeah. He can fight good, so maybe like if, if it is just raising cities, then he's probably not bad at that. So can I take us on a tangent about how Visser Three in particular is bad? One yeah. of my favorite fun facts that we learn about the Yerks in this is that they have regulations against... Needless <laughs> killing, uh, killing subordinates. of subordinates. And at one point it is hinted that these are 
newer regulations. Maybe it's in one of Edris's memories. But I'm really wondering, was this tailor-made to stop Esplin from doing what he's doing? Like, was he actually responsible I mean, for the, the regulations? So. No, because they don't know. There's a thing in there about how it'll come out all of the subordinates that he's killed, and that's going to be what he gets uh, accused of. And so he doesn't want them to figure out how many of his subordinates that he's killed. And right. I was like, <laughs> there's this oh, strong well, implication well, of hypocrisy of on the entire council. Yeah, but I guess it, it is kind of like uh, because you don't, there really are only thousands of Fort Bajir hosts. I yeah. guess that's kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah can we talk about that? So, like, back in the Hokpichir Chronicles, while the Yurks are taking the valleys that, that the heroes aren't in, Dak estimates that there are 100,000 Hokpichir controllers, which has the implication that the numbers are climbing. Now, mm-hmm. decades later, there are thousands of Hokpichir, and in one of these scenes with the trial, Idris says, We might, with luck, have been able to assemble and land a force of 50,000 Hokpichir. And that is after, like, 25 or 30 years. So, like, that quantum virus took a lot of them away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That checks out, yeah. At one point, when they're talking about the different classes of species, like, there are the species that don't exist in large enough numbers and don't reproduce quickly, like Horkbajir. And I was like, Toby was born and grew to maturity in, like, three months. They must be, like, really hard to become fertile. Yeah, but yes, so possibly they aren't, you know, they can't have a lot of children or something like that. Which makes sense if the Arn well, want a stable population. Yeah, they were artificially created and they had no predators, so... And they had a limited amount of space they could live in, too, so... It would be slow recruitment. I was wondering about that, and I think it's possible that on the Yerk's time scale, mm. it's not suitable, mm, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, if they have on the order of thousands of Hork Bajir, mm-hmm. it still takes time, right? Yes. Meaningful time, like, on, the, on the, the course of, like, months or years, right? But if you start from 5 billion instead yeah. of 500,000... Yeah. And you do the breeding program, right? That's a, yeah. that's enough of a leg up to like fight the war today and be training troops for the they future. They probably don't have enough Horkbajir to easily have half the Horkbajir out on maternity leave all the time. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I figure that like humans take so much longer to grow up. Like we've seen <laughs> that they can infest five-year-olds, but um, mm-hmm. if they have such a huge population, they could just like take people and and leave other people to raise new ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. the luxury of numbers. I want to go back a little to this scene with Marco and his mom. I just, I love the external view we get of mm-hmm. the Animorphs in this book. It is so satisfying. Yeah. The, I mean, starting from when Visser 3 has this, like, grizzly and a tiger attack the meeting, and then Visser 1 figures out that, like, oh, these are, like, zoo animals. He's just staging this thing so it can look like he killed mm-hmm. the Andalite bandits. And then later, once uh, Edris calls and they get the actual Animorphs to come fight, then it's just like a com- like it's world's chaos. different as a battle mm-hmm. and yeah and Visser one's like oh okay this now they'll see this is what it's like to fight the Andalite bandits and it's like yeah. brutal like the Animorphs are so good at this she's like she's a little worried that the Council of Thirteen will feel sympathy for Visser Three <laughs> yeah. because they're seeing how difficult it is to fight this tiny force of more capable yeah. beings. Mm-hmm. I also love it as like a little postscript to book 35 which is full of the animorphs making terrible plans and screwing things up so like if you just imagine this scene as like an extra four chapters at the end of book 35 where parker's like okay i got my morphing mojo back i'm gonna go in and like save my mom stop this or one and then they do this awesome plan and you Uh know 
they do the axe demorphs behind a bunch of distracted people yeah. thing again. Yep, good trick. Cassie good trick. uses a polar bear instead of a wolf. That was great. Which is like I the was, moment we've been waiting for. I was spending that whole scene being like, okay, is the polar bear Cassie or is it Rachel? Why would she do it for a different bear? But like, why is Rachel just a hork Like, wouldn't a grizzly bear be better? I was very intrigued by their choices. Yeah, you'd think Cassie would be better at hork than Rachel would be, but I don't know. Yeah. Right. Given 35. Yeah, yeah that's right, because Cassie has Aldrea now. Yeah. I mean, not Aldrea, has the... Had a, had a hork Yeah. Because yeah. of Eldrea. Yeah, and the Axe Visser 3 tail fight. Is that yeah. the first time that's happened? Uh, it happened. It's happened a few times. The last time, I think, was well, in uh, 21. No, 20. What? Oh, in yeah. David's oh, room. Oh, okay. Then, All right. But... And did they have like well, a rooftop fight in 18? The, they, they didn't have a fight. They didn't fight. Because so Visser 3 ran away. Totally they ran away. Into the dumpster. Bravely brave Sir Visser. Oh, man. Esplan is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And you love... get Axe solo fighting Mr. 3. It was great. Wait, I... This is in one of the best continuity moments of the entire series. Visser One rattles off a bunch of Visser Three's worst <laughs> plans, right? Like the free will ser- serum comes back. Yes. The anti morphing ray comes back. It's yes. so funny. <laughs> it's great. I like I like the idea of Applegrant being like, man, we've really come up with some weird ideas for these ghostwriters to write. <laughs> Let's call them all out in this book. But so I also loved not just the external view of the battle which is so satisfying um but also the view of the animorphs in this scene with like viscer one sitting there and they're all so cool they've got Mm -hmm. it so together they they're kind of like debating a little bit and it takes her a while to figure out that they're all human and then she's like she's like i wanted to laugh like this is so ridiculous like yeah they're all human but they have this great hologram technology they i really i really just want that missing hour and a half between the phone call and when they show up. Like, so Marco calls everyone, they convene, mm-hmm. they must go to the Chi yeah. to get the hologram yeah. technology. Does anyone try to talk him out of it? It was interesting that, like, we hear perspectives from, like, Jake and Rachel and Tobias, but we don't hear Cassie this time, mm-hmm. even though she had a strong opinion about it in 30. We get we get Cassie, like, putting her bare arm around, yeah. oh, she's yeah. polar bear, around Marco yeah. at one point. I love that. Oh, yeah. And because Marco's, like... Even though his mom is talking to him, he's like, I don't trust myself to make this call. Cassie, I need you to tell me whether I can trust yeah. this or Turn to the polar this. bear. Cassie, yeah. I think she's telling the truth. The yeah, I love that. <laughs> but I bet Cassie would be on board with it because it's about saving yeah. his mom, mm-hmm. not about killing her this time. The whole thing in the end, though, when they're all debating it, they are debating whether to give her back to Visser 1 and mm-hmm. thrust her back into the war mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I wonder if oh, yeah. the fact that Ava wants to do it just is enough, right? Like, who is Cassie to say that Ava is wrong about wanting to fight the war in her own yeah. way, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure Cassie has ever said to Rachel, like, you shouldn't want to fight people, right? Mm-hmm. That's not usually yeah. her. She's like, I can't do it, or it's like, can I do something without someone's permission, or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but if Ava's in it, maybe Cassie's okay with that. Back in 10, she really didn't want the Chi to become killers, but that was quite a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And I really like this passage where... Marco's like, okay, I need to talk to my mom. Edris, you get out of her head. If not, we'll have Axe cut your head off. Mm-hmm. And, and Edris is like, you won't do it. You're looking at your mother's face, her eyes. You can't. You're just a human with all the usual human weaknesses. And then Marco has this whole thing like, you know what it says in the New Hampshire license plates? Love my that. mom does. Look in her memories. We used to talk about it. We used to talk about how it was corny, but then we decided it wasn't corny at all. It was inevitable. And it's the live free or die slogan. Mm-hmm. And... 
And then Edris comes to believe that, like, he actually would do this thing. And, like, that seems like the kind of thing that Cassie would buy. She's like, mm-hmm. okay, Marco has, like, really... She, I feel like she would respect that kind of position. And I liked the parallels there between Ava and Allison, Kim, mm-hmm. um, who was the, the scientist that... Um, Address infests mm-hmm. earlier. Kind of loves in a horrible way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And who also has very much the live free or die attitude. Where at one point, Address gives her control just of her left eye, mm-hmm. and wait and see what she'll do with it. To see what she'll How do she with it. Her. And she doesn't. She realizes it and completely doesn't think about it until they're driving down the highway, and she closes the left eye so that. Edris loses all depth perception so that they will almost crash into a semi and nearly die. And it's uh-huh. like the first of the live free or die yeah. as a human instinct, which comes back over and over again in this book. Um, and one of the many places where I said, this is a middle grade book. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how it's complicated. Like they do have this recurring like humans are strong and they will sacrifice themselves for freedom. And then they also have Ava's counterpoint like, yeah, but at some point we'll give in and lots of people will die and humans have strengths and they also have weaknesses. And that mm-hmm. is like the strongest theme of this book, I feel like, is yeah. this sort of divided, complex nature of humanity. Hmm. Yeah. Um, really quickly on the Marco and his mom moment yeah. at the end. She uses his name so often, it's almost weird. Oh, it's oh, wonderful, but, but it's, it's so, so nice. It's like, it's every sentence is... Marco, you don't oh, understand. You're right. yeah. they'll, they'll dig until they get the answers, Marco. Marco, they do this. Marco, Marco. And it's I loved it because it was so wonderfully evocative of what he wanted in 35 oh. or 30. But also it was like, I love that you're doing this. Tone it down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think he really said his name very much, especially like back in 30 and back in 15. She didn't say his name. She said the oh, boy. Yeah. Or, or That's the whole thing. Boy. Yeah. Right, right. She, she just, Marco just wants to hear his mom. Just say his name name, and she does Marco that's a nice sentiment a brave ideal but the truth is Marco humans do submit not all and not always but some maybe most enough will submit Marco enough to give the years what they want and the rest will be dead so good. I also, I feel like this is really well plotted. Like Mm. usually, like I'm thinking of Alorin back in book eight. It's like, oh, well, like why can't you just stay uninfested? Like Mm -hmm. there isn't, there's no good reason to do it. But the stakes here kind of make sense. Yeah, I buy, yeah. I totally buy Ava's argument that Marco would have to make this decision. And you, you get that, like, the fact that Edris would give Ava that moment to be totally in control, mm-hmm. right? Even with Aftran at the end of 19, like, there's no way that Cassie could know that the little girl has been uninfested, right? Yeah. But they, they sort of were like, let's just pretend that that's not an issue. <laughs> but here, there's, there's nothing wrong. It's yeah. great. I really wanted... Marco and his mom to get to hug, and I don't think they do. They did. They didn't get to hug. They, wait, when do they hug? Hang on, let me. I was see. trying to find it. There's all this stuff about like Marco has Edris in his hand, like he has the yerk in his hand, and like when Edris is watching Ava's memories, she's like his fingers were squeezing around me. I saw how close I came to death. And at one point, she puts she hugged him close, squeezing. Oh, she my... does hug him. Yes. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, phew. She also, like, takes his face in her hands. When oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd him. found that. I was like, that can't be all. Yeah. They need to hug. No, they hug. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> we each fight this war in our own way, Marco. Mm-hmm. So do we want to dive into some of the earlier stuff? Oh, can I talk about the cover? <laughs> oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay, so I have the hardcover here because Gray <laughs> needs to see 
the magnificence of shiny. the holographic Oh my god, cover. it's so shiny. <laughs> it's so shiny. Why is it so shiny? What specifically is shiny? Everything right? is shiny. No, there's like a... Okay, what the... It's, it's this huge, very built Andalite who is shiny. It still has the hooves the size of his head, and it's weird. But yeah, also I think there's it's like... bigger, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there's like an aura around him. <laughs> That's that's the evil psychic sound. <gasps> Graphic. That's the scream. Yes. Oh, there oh. it is. Oh, and look at the back also. Oh my god. <laughs> He's watching you. Well, in case you wanted to know what an Andalite butt looked like, there you go. <laughs> Damn, really? Let me describe a few things from like early books too. Oh, please do. And please watch the cover while I'm saying them. Okay. So in book two, Rachel talks about seeing uh, Mister Three and noting his gentle Andalite expression, the gentle Andalite body. Almost mincing on delicate andalite legs. Andalites are strange looking, that's for sure, but they're not frightening. In book three, Tobias is saying, dainty andalite hooves, small andalite arms. In 13, Tobias comes back and says, andalites always look like they're right on the borderline between cute and dangerous. Vista three doesn't look any different outside, he just looks like an older andalite, but that line doesn't exist. And here, four almost dainty hooves. There's also how in uh, 29, Cassie bites his wrist to, get, to make him let someone go, and it works. <laughs> so uh, I figure he's either like half morphed something beefy, or he has like amazing camera technology, low angle, <laughs> high gloss. Oh, it's Photoshop. Oh, it's Photoshop. <laughs> oh, Visser. Yeah, I was gonna say this is like not dainty. This is yeah, pure. It's all about propaganda. <laughs> pure muscle beast. Yeah, he has Valorant. so many abs. <laughs> Just like so much abs. So many abs. The the hooves are really what weird me out the most for some that reason. That front hoof is just I don't understand really... it and I don't like I think it. it's meant to be deaf perception, but it's Yeah, it's big. just really intense. It's up close. Was it from somebody who only had one eye? <laughs> Our head has been cut off and we've fallen at his oh. at his hooves. Oh, yes, we're, we're a subordinate up. who wasn't supposed to be executed but yeah. was. Also, and now he's going to be exiled. I know I he doesn't have a mouth, but he sure looks like he has a mouth on this. Yeah. it's. Oh, funny. you're right, because of the way he's holding his chin. I do like that this is actually a tail that's long enough that looks like it could reach in front of him, you know? Mm. Yes, that's oh, true. Because if they're point. fighting, like, yeah. That's not a scorpion tail. Can I drop a link to um, Michael Grant's rendition of an Andalite for you? So we can talk oh, about canon <gasps> depiction of Andalites. Oh, please. This is from the wiki. Wait, before you put away the book, we should have Gray look at the flip, the flip book oh, in yes, the corner. Oh, yes, do that. Oh, okay. I don't even know what this <laughs> is. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I think I've seen this before, and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, those stock eyes. <laughs> those stock eyes. Also what the... even is this flip book? Oh, good no. heavens. Okay, I'm gonna... Okay, wait, it starts with a spaceship? What is happening? No. That's not a spaceship. Oh, oh, no. oh, no. I'm so worried. <gasps> it's somebody getting infested. Who is it? Is it Marco? It looks like Marco. It couldn't be Marco, though, because he Darwin? doesn't get infested in this book. Darwin! Oh, oh maybe. No. maybe. It doesn't look like a nine-year-old, but... Also, who knows? check also, out the back inside book jacket, where um, <gasps> oh! Kay Applegate reveals herself to be none other than David, due to her lion <laughs> Oh, no. Okay, I, There's I also a typo here somewhere. Oh, no. It's not very well proofed. What motived? What motived? What motived? <laughs> Um, I want to read this from the back cover because, barring the typo, it's quite nice. Um, what motived Miss Applegate to write Visser? Visser <laughs> motivated. In writing Visser, I wanted to address one of the big questions fans regularly pose. How did it all start? 
I wanted to suggest the possibility that the Yerk evil could only flourish when it met with human weakness, but I also wanted to suggest the possibility that human strengths, simple human good, in this case a mother's love, could weaken evil. Oh, I like that. That's just what Jenny was saying. Look at you. There's, I do want to talk about human weakness, but while we're talking about how it all started, can I have a minute to address the timeline of this series? Oh, Oh, thank you for bringing it is so messed up. Okay, okay. So in the Angelite Chronicles, we learn that it's 21 years earlier. So we've been assuming the series starts in '96 because that's when the first books come out which means that the first two parts of Andalite Chronicles take place in 75. So that's when Lorne and Chapman became known to the Yerks. So presumably not that much time passed before the report got to Visser 1 on her little moon where she was looking for classified species. Okay, I'm with you so far. So that was probably 75, maybe 76. Let's call it 76. We'll call it 76. Then she spends a year looking. Then she steals, then she's going to like get transferred to the Taxon homeworld because no one believes her that she's found them. So she steals a ship with Essam, this other year, goes to Earth. Maybe that takes another year, so let's call that 78. Mm-hmm. Then she gets to Earth. It's Operation Desert Storm. Do you know what year Operation Desert Storm happened? <laughs> was 1970. Oh! <laughs> Actually, you would think it would be 78, but it was 1991. I, 91! I, I think that would work if this was Operation Desert Storm, but here's why I think it isn't. Uh-huh. Um, and by Good work, luck. you mean be very wrong, but yes. yes. Uh, I think I, I take your point that if this was Operation Desert Storm, fine. But the reason that I looked this up was because when, so she lands on Earth mm-hmm. and in the desert somewhere in the middle of trench warfare. And I said to myself, you must be joking. What, <laughs> what kind of trench warfare do you have in 1980? What the heck? And I got... Very indignant about this. Okay. And I went and read the Wikipedia article about trench warfare and found out that I was, in fact, quite wrong. Okay. Trench warfare is most well known for World War One, of course, and uh-huh. World War II to a lesser degree. But it turns out that trench warfare was also very famously used in the Iran-Iraq War that took place between 1980 and 1988, hmm. okay. um, which was originally known as the um, Persian Gulf War, then the first Persian Gulf War, uh-huh. and now it's just the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988, which did have extensive use of trenches. However, okay. I, I'm actually, I'm probably wrong about this. And the reason I think I'm wrong about this is Israel wasn't a notable participant oh, in that war. Okay. And they do actually mention Israel as one of the enemy combatants for the mm-hmm. um, Arab person who she infests. So that's probably not it, but that was the closest I could get. So call okay. it the beginning of that. That's 1980. So it's closer. All right. So when she heard about updates on Desert Storm mm-hmm. in like the media she gets when she first drives at Earth, they were just using those two I words randomly. Did not realize that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was what it's, yeah. it's they actually oh. hear a radio report or doing, report on Desert Storm. Later developments in Operation Desert Storm. So oh, you right. might be right that it's not an accurate depiction of Desert Storm. But if I may continue with the timeline. Throw it all away. <laughs> Go on, it's 1978, so, but also 1996. So it's, it's early 91 is when Desert Storm happens. Sure. So that must be when she gets to Earth. Somehow it takes her 13 years to get to Earth. Okay. Sure, that seems Time real. distortion with, with a rapid burn. Z-Space engine was burning. <laughs> yeah, she just, she didn't travel through Z-Space. She just took maximum burn the whole time <laughs> and it was bad. So then 91, early 91, she meets, um, she and Essam infest, uh, she infests Jenny Lines and he infests uh, Mr. Lowenstein, the producer. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, they presumably have those bodies for a little while. Then she gets Allison Kim, her scientist uh, host. That's probably late 91. Then she and like a few time, a few months pass in the memories. It's like a little over a year, I guess, is the gap in her mm-hmm. memories. So that means that she probably got pregnant in early 92, maybe gave birth to the twins in late 92. And uh, then when Visitor 3 brings in one of her kids, he's found her, her son, Darwin, he brings him in and, and she's like, oh, he'd be nine years old now. I'm like, so is it 2001? <laughs> <laughs> Have the animals been fighting for five years? That is definitely not true, since in book 35, we found out that she had been missing for two years and a few months. Yes. So if by a little more than two years, they met seven years, <laughs> then maybe... But also you have the problem with if she gave birth in late 92, she must have like broken up with SM, like killed Allison Kim in like early 93 or something. Then we don't know. We don't actually see her infesting Ava, but we know that she was she infested Ava for two years. And then there's two years where she was she had disappeared. And then the Animorphs start. So that puts the Animorphs starting early 97 at the very earliest, assuming she got Ava like right in the beginning of 93. Which doesn't seem like what happened, because it's like she's building the sharing, she has Lord David Altman, like it doesn't seem like she jumps straight into Ava, because we don't even get her in the story, really. So that means Animorphs probably didn't start to like 98 or 99. Yeah. Which is like, what? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. You're totally right. <laughs> this is not, we can't, there's no way to fix this. Mm-mm. There's definitely no way to I fix this. I just want to register that. You can say that um, one of Edith's hosts was on cocaine, so... <laughs> Time distortion. Here's a theory, which is that originally (laughs) Darwin was written to be a five or six year old. Uh And the one note that the editor (laughs) gave was, you can't can't have her threaten to shoot a five year old. You have to age the kid up. (laughs) So she can threaten to kill a nine year old. That's fine. I have another note that I think was also passed down. Okay, so Hilde Gervais is like a total non-entity compared to Lowenstein. We don't know his job. We don't know his history. Oh, yeah. So that's Essam's host who was, like, married to Alison Kim. We know that Essam really admired Lowenstein. He thought he was, like, really cool. He thought he'd done so much. I think originally Lowenstein was was the host that Essam had the whole time. And he's who hooked up with Allison through that horrible, horrible poly relationship. But someone went, oh, <laughs> that guy's old. Can't have that. That is the worst thing about his. We must change it. It's fine if they don't have their ages defined. Huh, but does that solve any of the time problems? No. no. Oh, okay. I'm talking about things that, the, things that the editors went like, uh, this isn't right. Yeah, it is interesting that of the four characters, he gets the least. Hildy, yeah. yeah. We don't know what his job was at all. Lowenstein was a TV mm-hmm. producer. Yeah, we don't really know where Hildy came from or why um, why SM gave up Lowenstein, because he seemed to like him as a host. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really make sense. There were a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff about this book, and we should keep talking about it. But like, I I really wish we had gotten more of the transition, like to Ava. Like we got yeah. a throwaway line, like that's why I infested her, because like subconsciously I wanted this experience of being a wife and mother. But by that point, I had like rebuilt my walls, and I wasn't able to open myself up to it. And so, like, but we don't see anything about that. We don't even see when Visser 3 took over the operation on Earth or, like, why that mm-hmm. happened. Like, yeah. was it just Visser 1 was too important for it and they promoted her out of there? Like, it doesn't seem like she would have wanted to leave because her kids were there. I also yeah. don't understand 
I, I have made this complaint before, and this book did not sufficiently explain it to me, so I'm <laughs> going to make this complaint again. Uh-huh. I do not understand why an up-and-coming visor or subvisor or whatever her rank is at the time, who has, we now know, been on Earth for a while, learning uh-huh. about Earth from a variety of different people and creating the sharing and whatever, would infest Ava, who is a not important, a wonderful yeah. human being, I'm sure, and yeah. a delightful person, and I love her, but not important. I don't think she would want to infest someone important, because if she's trying to infest someone important by human standards, she might have to do their job, and that would take a lot of time. But you would think she'd infest someone unattached. Yeah. Like, she has to do the mother job. She has to do the third shift there. But, like, while she complains about it in the beginning, you also see in that prologue that she's been doing it. She's been taking care of Marco when he's sick. Yeah. She's been doing all these things. So she must have just wanted only to do that. And she's saying now that's dull, but she wants to have it all. I actually, it makes it a lot more kind of like a, she's kind of like a Shakespearean villain if you really Mm -hmm. lean into the idea that she could have picked an unattached host. Uh And it's this fact that she wanted a family, a fake Mm -hmm. family, that ultimately puts her in the situation where she can be saved by her fake son. Uh But now she's in this like position where she's trapped, where the animorphs Uh have something on her, right? So it's like in some kind of, you know, karmic scale she reaped the consequences of her like selfishness and sort of i don't know hubris her hubris right that she could do this and not suffer any consequences yeah because you're right gray that it doesn't make sense i don't think though that she would want someone important by human standards well no i think she would just want like a body that she could then use to run yeah like laura david altman makes so much sense yeah um by the way my suggested subtitle for this book is yerks invent scientology (laughs) (laughs) it does say that they moved out of hollywood because there were already cults like that there yeah exactly oh yeah very funny but I just like the idea of, like, aliens and other planets and stuff. It's like, yeah, basically. <laughs> I loved her note. She's like, then I killed off Lord David Altman because humans will, you know, find fault with a living leader, but they'll revere a dead one. And, yeah. like, his, I left cryptic writings behind. I'm like, does the sharing still have these? We've heard nothing <laughs> about this. Does Tom, like, have motivational posters on his walls right. from Lord David Altman? It's so confusing to me because... We do not did not know that the sharing was a cult. No, that is not how it is described. It's had culty feelings for a while. Yeah, but it's it is not a little like, culty. Yeah. My thing is, if I were in charge of this, <laughs> when she kills off Lord David Altman, she would infest the second in command mm, mm-hmm. and continue yeah, the yeah. sharing. It doesn't seem like that like, was Ava. That's the kind of importance that I want her to. Yeah, seek importance out. in the sharing. Like, I yeah. do kind of wonder. If, like, Ava actually did have a role in the sharing, like, maybe she joined it as um, an immigrant mom, and that's part of how she was she was grabbed up by it. Huh. It, was like, it seems Tricky. like she must have had some, some role in it, even while she was being a mother. Well, I yeah. feel like we would have... There's no reason Ava couldn't have been sort of sharing involved or a voluntary host, but I feel like it would have... It would oh, be weird for it not voluntary. to come. Not yeah. right. Just that she joined as it as it was an organization that seemed like helpful and social. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but we never get like, oh yeah, my mom was super involved with the sharing. Like right, Marco never yeah. talks about that. Or like, yeah, when my mom used to go to these meetings. Like it just never seems to be a thing. Yeah. She seems to have been 
sort of separate from that in her life as Marco's mom. Mm-hmm. As far as we can and tell. And yet she was running this invasion that was primarily happening through the sharing. So. And also, like, we don't ever hear anything about, like, oh, did you know that the founder of the sharing was once attacked by someone who was raving about aliens taking over people's brains? Right. So, I don't know. I guess lots of stuff is obscured. Yeah, there's this... I mean, it's... I guess a lot of it's... We don't get much about what happens after she kills Allison Kim yeah. and, like, mm-hmm. the babies get adopted to, like, the start of the Animorphs. We don't really get much of that. No. Um, can we talk about the babies now? Oh, yes. Let's talk about the babies. Um, one of the places in my book where I have middle grade in all caps. And I don't... <laughs> so, as Allison Kim, she has children. Mm-hmm. Twins. Yep. Adorably names them Darwin and... Madra, something like Madra, that, which is yep. the name of a moon of the Yerk planet. Uh-huh. Very sweet. I liked that a lot. <laughs> um, and realizes that she loves these children. Great. Fine. <laughs> Mother's love, very important. Uh-huh. But then somehow this Yerk wants to both protect the children and kill the host that is their mother so as to advance... In the year hierarchy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. question mark. I don't know how that was going to help, but fine. <laughs> Doesn't want to look too attached. Yeah, but then wants, presumably wants her children to eventually become infested. So that's part of this sort of slow infestation, but not to be killed, which is why she doesn't want like a violent war. But I don't, I don't understand. And then the kid shows up and there's the like, you're going to have to kill it. And the child is a controller, and she's holding a gun on it. And my whole thing is just, this is a middle grade series. Mm. <laughs> Young children are reading this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What exactly are they meant to understand from this whole nonsense thing? Unfortunately, your takeaways might be that this was like a... Uh, a kind of like quirky four-way relationship that went sour and that Visser one is redeemed by her motherly affection. However, this is not my take on it today. Yeah, go on. Yeah, when I was a kid, it, it felt semi-okay to me back then, too. The only like thing it was um, Ava completely going off on Idris about it. Oh, that was the only thing I found redeeming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... So I, read, I, I must have been 14 when I read this. And, like, I don't know. I feel like I was... I certainly didn't read it in the same way that I read it today. But I feel like as a 14-year-old, which might not be the exact age target of this book, I I really enjoyed the complex look at humanity. Like, this whole... There's this whole thing in the, in the beginning where she's like, their brains have two lobes. Why? Was it a redundant oh. system? No, the two halves are different and only thinly connected. Wait, can we talk about, yes. do we just want to have a tangent about that? Because that is my, one of my favorite passages. Yeah, let's let's return to it. Okay, just, we'll come back. We'll come back. The This whole, like, and humans have weaknesses and humans have strength. Like, as a 14-year-old, I, like, ate that up. I was like, mm-hmm. people are so complicated. I'm amazed. My mind is, it was like uh-huh. that that uh, meme with, like, the brain. I was the exploding brain. Oh, this was brain. a galaxy brain book. Yes, it's, it was, <laughs> oh my God. it's galaxy brain. I don't know about this book specifically, but, like, the series in general was like that for me. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like this is sort of part of it, of, like, okay, so she has this love for the children, but she's also really bad at the love, and it's sort of a selfish love, and she's not, like, managing it well. Like, I don't know. I felt like all of those parts of it could coexist in my 
head. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to... So I don't have super strong memories of reading this book. I don't think I was, like, traumatized by it. No, I remember I... being upset. So I remember that I had a very strong sense of narrative plot armor, right? So mm. a, a situation like she's going to have to shoot Darwin, it's, like, it's very exciting. But she's not, obviously oh, yeah. the way that's set up, that's not going to happen, right? Yeah. Like, if that had happened, I think that my brain would have broken, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, but the things that I do remember is, like, her... Uh, becoming Allison Kim and drowning Jenny Lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a terrible murder. Even just the line where she says, I waited for Allison to come back to the hospital in disguise and just like, and then I killed her. That was really bad. The uh-huh. thing that did not register to me as quite as bad is just like how awful and violating it would be to be like Allison Kim yeah. in the situation yeah. where you're. Yeah. Like, she is forced into this relationship where she has to try and appease this, like, narcissistic enslaver just yeah. just, just to basically move things in a slightly better direction, right? As her mm-hmm. body is, like, used without her permission. And, yeah. and she can see this that this person is like, oh, yeah, you know, Allison and I, we have this really, like, fun, friendly relationship. Like, Allison knows that Edris is feeling that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's uh-huh. like she's never not aware of the terrible situation she's in. The weight of that does not escape me now. But I think it, it just didn't really register because... Visser One is so oblivious to that because yeah. she's so... Visser One's the main character. You're not, and she's yeah. so... She's such a narcissist. She only cares about herself and doesn't really think about Allison as a separate person or any really anyone else. Yeah, except in insofar way. as, like, how can I exploit them? And, yeah. and that's the thing about the children, right? I give her no points for caring about the kids because she only sees those kids as, like, uh, an experience that she can have as an extension of herself, mm-hmm. as something that... It's like part of her that she feels like she wants to preserve. It's very possessive and not at all. Mm -hmm. Like she never thinks like, oh, this must be terrible for Darwin. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in in contrast to Ava. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting view of of what it means to be a mother. Yeah. And what lengths you're willing to go to, but also how that motherhood plays into this larger battle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. even the like the other thing about um, Edris is she's like oh I found the class 5 species I'm going to be the first person to infest a human mm-hmm. not true no. Esplin got there first yeah which so is not funny that it doesn't acknowledged. come acknowledged it actually he says he never infested he, he a human which is not true that's when he's muttering her up to try and go you know we could be we could totally turn <laughs> to the council oh that's true so, he could just be lying yeah, yeah but, but then at the end when she gets this out where it's like, okay, Visser One, you're going to go distract the giant Andalite fleet at the Anadi homeworld. Visser One immediately has delusions of grandeur again. And yep. she's like, uh-huh. a new species, a new homeworld, and I will be in charge of everything. <laughs> oh, a new start. A great, big, lovely galaxy full of opportunity. Yeah. That attitude that is makes her a very... I still love her as a villain. Oh, but yeah, but she's she, pure villain. Pure, <laughs> pure Very villain. enjoyable to read. Yeah. I really, I mentioned that I like kind of was with Ava on her arc where in the middle you're like, she, she like fell in love sort of in a human way and had kids and she loved the children. And like, that's when Ava is like, okay, I'm going to help you get out of this. Like, I didn't realize that like you wanted the slow infestation of earth so that your, your kids wouldn't die. Okay. That's a motive I can sympathize with. And then you really learn at the end, like how, I mean, 
when she kills Allison Kim, like she kills the kid's actual mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you learn that, okay, she really doesn't care if absolutely everyone else dies. And as insofar as her kids, she's like, Madra wasn't a controller. I could find her someday. And like, she would love me as a daughter loves a mother. Mm-hmm. And if she didn't, I would put a yerk in her head mm-hmm. and then she would have to love me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. No it comes out. Right. <laughs> yep. yep. That's not even subtle. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very blatant. Like, she wants something out of these kids. She wants this, like, emotion that she feels. But she doesn't actually care about them or their no. quality of life or... Yeah. No. It was a very nice extreme example of how sometimes parenting can go wrong. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of... Remember back in the other two Chronicles, um, there was this theme of, like, interspecies relationships? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Such a thing. All <laughs> the Chronicles This books. is another, yes. I have kids, but they're not really my kids because they're a different species because of morphing or infestation. I have kids of a different species than oh my, my body biologically is. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, with, um, with Elfangor and Lauren, that was this whole thing where, like, they were thrown together in a bad situation, and things are bad, so they got they clung to each other. With Jack and Aldrea, it was almost the same, just that they were a little bit less sympathetic as people. <laughs> well, Aldrea is, anyway. She's way <laughs> yeah, like more that. sympathetic than Idris, I gotta say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And, and here, it's way worse. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah, but it does seem to be a fascination of Apple Grant, this, like, having kids who are yours in a way that is defying biology. Yeah. Right. And they ended up adopting a kid, right? Like their second kid was adopted? I do not remember. Okay, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I thought I thought that was true. But I I like that as an yeah. idea if that's what happened as like Yeah. No, I mean it's it's a theme yeah. that I really love. Like it plays right into my found family yeah. thing that I love so much, right? So um, you could make your own found family almost. Yeah, exactly. Motherhood is such an important part of how we think about women in the world, but also, you know, growing up and and Mm -hmm. passing things on to the next generation. But there are different models for it. And I really appreciated the contrast between the different methods. I mean, there really, Allison has her own, right? She's willing to take stupid risks to protect Mm -hmm. her children Mm -hmm. versus Edris versus Ava. Like there's different, all these different models. Um, It's very sweet. I really liked this idea that emotion is not in itself redeeming. Like she has this mother love for her kids and it does not result in her, like it results in her not killing the kids, but that's all it does. Like it does, like she doesn't, she doesn't make choices that are even in the kids' best interest. Yeah. And I feel like that's a really nice foil to Marco who feels all this emotion for his mom and like doesn't let it sway him into making Mm. the wrong choice for everyone this idea that emotion is not in itself morality like it's Mm -hmm. like just what you feel and it can it can be a valuable thing but it's not the same as like moral strength or goodness it informs your decisions but it isn't the only thing and it's also another sort of similar theme from other books in the series is the way that so the she ends up having this mother love but she starts to uh lose track of the mission just by mm-hmm. being in Allison Kim and like mm-hmm. Allison's like that's just LA right everyone yeah. everyone feels everyone feels a little bit fuzzy here 
And it kind of reminds me of how, like, Axe lets loose Ooh. in Human Morph mm. and how... Humans are addictive. Right. Elfing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, they, <laughs> that's what they say. So that's a really... It's another way that the series kinds of postulates that humans are unique in this certain way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, like, chaotic and distracting and hard to be focused. And all of, yeah. like, the Andalites and the Yurks and all the other cultures are very, like, everyone has their role and they do their thing. And yeah. it's, like very fixed social boundaries. But there's sort of this broader than just human idea of sometimes like another species can be like, I mean, addictive isn't exactly a description of what happens in the Harpisher Chronicles, but like you can, like your allegiance can change towards another species. Like you can investigate another species and decide it's what you want. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Essam kind of does that. Yeah. Essam actually chooses humanity and Edris never totally does. And the thing with Asim, like, also, you, you hear about how he was a submaster for a little while, and then he had a lapse in judgment and, quote-unquote, allowed some hork to escape. Mm-hmm. On a uh, neutral yeah. ship. Yes. Right, yeah. he respected neutrality. Yep, yep. Yeah. And that was his a yerk with, uh, offense. with some morals. I actually, I love Esam, because he's, we see so, so many of the yerks that we meet are the... Tamrashes and the Taylors and the Esplins. The and they're all kind of, and the William Roger Tennant's Yerk. Oh, they're, yeah. They're all kind of cut from the same cloth, monomaniacal types. Uh-huh. Right? And Essam's just like, you know, sort of doing his doing his job, right? Probably playing trying along to actually with some obey extent, regulations. But, right, yeah. but not trying to advance, not particularly ambitious, bloodthirsty or ambitious. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, presented with this. Oh my gosh. This is kind of, except for the horrible, like, brain slavery, this is actually kind of the plot of the TV show The Americans, about the two Soviet spies that are deep undercover in the U.S., and they pretend to be married. They're not actually married, but then Uh they have kids who don't know they're spies, right? So the show takes place when, like, the kids are, you know, young teenagers, but it's very much (laughs) the same dynamic of, like, Mm -hmm. the... um, the father is like, hey, maybe we should just defect. And because like, our kids are basically Americans anyway. And the mom is like, no, Russia comes oh, first. Yeah, that is That's the, the same. Plus some brain slavery. That's really interesting. So I feel like there are a lot of there are a lot of directions we can go in. But Joyce, I want to make sure you have a chance to talk about the things you want to talk about. Uh, well, just one one thing for here. It's that um, his uh, last human host there, quote, Spacey. Hildy, yeah. Yeah. He says that they were friends as much as a human can be friends with a Yerk because he still couldn't, he wasn't allowed to look where he wanted to look. Yeah. He wasn't able to use his own hands. They just talked a lot. So, like, even that, it's not, it's better, probably, than um, Idris and anyone, but that's a, that's not a good relationship. Well, yeah. We've been talking about, like, this whole Tidwell thing. Like, to what extent is it actually possible to form a, good relationship with someone who has mm-hmm. enslaved you or even if it's a situation where like you both opted in like mm-hmm. maybe someone agrees to be a peace movement host or something this year still has the power to control you entirely and it's a little unclear whether that they have to exercise it like to what extent they can give up mm-hmm. that control yeah and however however sympathetic Essam was is not sympathetic enough to let Hildy live himself right but like that is sort of the choice that i mean that aftran kept bringing up and like she had the solution of morphing a whale and Essam doesn't have that solution um and Essam does actually let himself die in order to avoid going along with edris's plan mm-hmm. like he could have stayed and gotten more kendrona rays with her but he 
runs away and knows he's going to die in three days. Though that's pretty selfish, too. One, like, consequentially, you know, because of what Edris does, Hildy um, loses his mind, Mm -hmm. right? And then also, we know that having a Yurk die in your head is very, very, very unpleasant for the host. Mm -hmm. So, like... As he could have just, just gotten crawled out, out earlier. And, yes. You know, committed suicide. And that would have been, I think, a little more the like, I actually respect Hildy instead of yeah, just like, I'm going to sacrifice, you know, us, Hildy. Like, we both want this, yeah. right? Like, obviously. Yeah, he was trying to hold on can't. to like this fake family life he had for as long as possible. Right. Yeah, couldn't but, let Hildy get the kids. But it is. Yeah. So I think, because like, obviously, the being a Yerk is inherently. Or, Yurking, I guess, like <laughs> infesting people is inherently really, really bad. But to your point about different types of people, mm-hmm. one thing that we haven't really talked about is like that scene of the first voluntary controller oh, infestation. Oh, man. Where yeah. Edris is like, so I have the sharing now. And like, this was the test. This was what I was going to use to say my uh, slow, stealthy plan will work, where she basically holds up a yurk, a gross little slug to this guy who's like, hey, if you want to join the inner circle of the sharing, I will put this alien in your head and it will control everything you do and you will lose everything. And the guy's like, but this is how I get into the inner circle. Sign me up. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And like, that's that's pretty plausible. And like a really grim picture of kind of the kinds of things that motivate people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if, if like all voluntary hosts get that same spiel or is it ever like less than that? Yeah. I don't know because if they're going to stay voluntary, because having a voluntary host isn't just like getting them to say yes. It's getting them to understand a little bit about what it is and then still saying yes mm-hmm. so that they're not fighting constantly right. the yerk in their head. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, the other part of the human weakness that they're exploiting is loneliness. Yeah. And I actually thought it was a little bit interesting that that wasn't part of becoming a voluntary controller. Yeah. It, it wasn't. It's not explicitly part of yeah, the cult speech. You know, this goes into your brain, you'll never be lonely again. Oh, yeah. You know, it Good was, point. Which I kind of expected. Yeah. So it's totally different. But it the sharing, the way that it's constructed, is to take advantage of the human, mm-hmm. you know, loneliness and to to give these people a, a, a place and a home and a community. I wonder if it, like, did they think it was too dark to have, like, or did it just not occur to them? Did it not seem, like, to have, I know, <laughs> look at the book of the whole, but, like, this idea that, like, humans would prefer to have an alien in their head than to be alone? Like, I'm surprised that the series hasn't gone there. Yeah. I guess Tidwell did talk about it Tidwell a little bit. Like, it. it's nice yeah. to have a company. Exactly. But I, it's, it's an interesting avenue that isn't explored. There's a lot in this book about, like, the humans that, that Edris and Essam are exposed to in their first infestations like really shape their perspective on mm-hmm. humanity. Mm-hmm. So uh, Edris chooses Jenny Lines, this like young um, aspiring actress who is addicted to, I assume, Coke. That's the implication. Yeah, Her name right. is Jenny Lines. So <laughs> seems seems reasonable. <laughs> and uh, and Essam goes for this like TV producer who has survived, I assume, the Holocaust. Yeah, and, that's the implication. Yeah, and has like made this career in a new country and like wields all this power in Hollywood. And Essam's like, these people aren't weak. And Edris is like, oh, these people are weak. Mm. And of course, both are true, right? Yes. Yeah. Also, middle grade, <laughs> middle, middle grade book, and yet, what? What? <laughs> what? I mean. 
Mr. Three also offers Spacey a bottle. He doesn't say what the bottle is. Oh, yeah. To get him to talk. Yeah, that is a nice disguise there. Yeah. Well, they also <laughs> say he's alcoholic, so, like, what are you losing by not saying it? It's all deeply weird and disturbing. I feel like as a kid, I would have been like, oh, yeah, an alcoholic. Okay, a bottle. And they've been like, you can have this vodka. I've been like, oh, shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. Too far. <laughs> it totally makes sense in terms of the parents look at what the kid is reading. Does it pass the mm, smell test thing? Right? Uh-huh. If you see the word vodka, you'll get upset. I'm just saying, my kids are not reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to give them one book a month when they are oh the exact gosh. age I was when <laughs> no. the books came out. <laughs> Maybe a little older, and we're skipping this one entirely. Oh, I'm like, that's weird. I'm not having this reaction to this book. I mean, I can see, I can see, I just... I think part of it is there are so many pieces of this that I find so morally uh, appalling and that the book mentions and then immediately moves on from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think, like, the thing that jumps out to me on this point is the, like... um, I think Visser one is a well-drawn character, Mm -hmm. but I think it's probably, I don't know how I feel about middle grade doing the kind of like unreliable, terrible Mm -hmm. protagonist, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you're not going to give a kid Lolita to read, (laughs) right? It's like, obviously the most extreme example Mm -hmm. of unreliable narrator doing terrible things. But in Mm -hmm. some ways, like Visser one talking about how awesome it is to glory and taking over the senses of another being Uh so completely is like really really disturbing and so you know it's maybe it's maybe not going to make an impression on a kid i don't think it made much of an impression on me but that is kind of why (laughs) i feel like it's inappropriate like because the kid can't probably doesn't get the subtlety right yeah i don't know kids are pretty smart you guys i guess i was like older than the middle grade audience like 14 is not quite middle grade audience like i wasn't 10 when i read this but like I don't know, kids are pretty smart. Kids are smart, and I think that they would get the, you know, I think there are enough of the good messages in this. Mm-hmm. I just think that there is also an awful lot of um, ambiguity that is very difficult to parse and mm-hmm. complicated mm-hmm. even for an adult. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that some kids would read this and be like, Darwin has two moms and two dads, right? <laughs> I feel like that that's a way that you could understand this, right? Yeah. And one of them is a bad parent, right? Like, <laughs> Visser One is clearly a bad person, right? Yeah, but, like, yeah. the whole situation is unacceptable. Like, Essam is not a good... He's not any better than Edris, even though he's very sympathetic, right? But it's also one of the things where, like, okay, maybe they haven't thought... Maybe a kid reading this doesn't think through the implications of, like, oh, man, and these Yorks are controlling these humans, and it's not okay, even in this happy family scenario. But, like, if they haven't thought about it yet, so maybe they'll come back to it years later and be like, oh, wow, that's really messed up. Like, they just aren't thinking about it. Like, yeah. it's not that they're like, ah, oh, yes, exactly controlling everyone is totally okay. They're just not thinking it through yeah. yet. No, I think that's a good point. Um, I I mean, I haven't thought about this in great detail. I would have no problem letting someone who was my age read this book. Your age went now or your age when you were reading this <laughs> I also would not have any <laughs> thank you for, someone your age. Sorry. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> Listeners, I am, in fact... 11 years old now. I don't know if we made that clear when we started the podcast a year ago when I was 10. 
Ted's timeline was written by Kay Applegate, <laughs> so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, no, I mean, I don't, I don't think that I would stop a kid from reading that at middle grade mm, age. No. But I, I do think it's. Um, I totally agree with you that this is not a middle grade book in some meaningful yeah. ways. I think also sometimes dangers that are closer to a kid's life are like more disturbing. Like yeah. the idea of like an alien parasite inhabiting a woman and a, like another one inhabiting a man who then have kids. Like that's not like that's it's actually so not far the from... thing that I think would be the most disturbing. Yeah. Like I imagine a nine year old having nightmares about being controlled mm. and having their mother point a gun at them. Oh. Huh. Or like finding uh, out that your parents aren't who they say they are. I feel like that's less like because you're in Edris's head. It's I don't know it, that that scene doesn't feel very visceral to me, despite yeah. the presence of several viscers. Yeah. <laughs> and no, like he I, is such a little like robot child. Like he's not like showing any emotion. It's not yeah. like when they try to kill the Janets on the Good Place and he's just like screaming. Yeah. No, I mean I think I think that's right. That actually makes it worse for me. But again, I'm reading it as an adult who is yeah. seeing a nine year old child point the gun at their chest and saying pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Like that was. Very disturbing for okay. me, and and you know, I imagine a sensitive child might also find uh-huh, that disturbing. Uh-huh. But I also don't think it's. There are lots of disturbing things that happen in the world that doesn't necessarily mean that I would you know blanket ban this. Yeah. I think I'd just be more cautious about this one than I am about some of the others, just because yeah. there is. And it's funny because you know the the like casual drug use actually doesn't. Like, I I think it's weird that it's in a middle grade book that the Visser's like, yeah, and then I just gave her a lot of drugs because, hey, that was really easy. And I was like, it's also clearly like it's making her weak and it's like bad for her. It's not portrayed as like good or glamorous. Sure. It's just weird that it. Yeah. What about the uh, the limbless torso that is. uh, Sure. Throwing it because her one's feet. During the war. Oh, that's that's everywhere in the series, honestly. This hits a lot of those, like, things that would make it a very highly rated movie. Like, rated <laughs> R or at least 13. See, I feel like um, book six, the one where Jake gets infested, which was actually the one that Jeremy read and had nightmares about. And his yeah, mom was like, you can't read these books anymore. Like, I feel like that would be scarier for me mm. as a kid than this kid walking in um, and having his mom point the gun at him, like, because it is sort of the experience of actually being controlled and you're really in it. Whereas this, like, that I feel like you just read that, like, oh, no, is she going to have to kill her kid? Oh, no, she doesn't. Yay. Like, yeah. I feel like that would be the That's kid's fair. reaction to that. Yeah, when I, I think when I was a kid, the part here that I found scariest was, like, way back in the prologue where um, Idris is checking on a marker for the last time and... Ava's there, like, pleading and begging and screaming and screaming and screaming. Oh, yeah. Because she knows she has to just leave forever. Yeah. That's because, but that's just where I was at the time. I think that's a really good point. And actually, one of the pieces that I wanted to bring up was the um, uh, Visser One's hypocrisy around um, the memory dump. So uh, mm. they're they're trying to get the, a memory dump of those that year when Visser One was in Allison Kim. And uh, they, Visser 3 wants to do a live memory dump. I will enter her memory and root out the truth. And Visser 1 says, it was the ultimate violation. Um, it would make <laughs> me no better than, than you know, a, a controller. And Ava says, yes, you'd feel what it was like to have someone controlling your memory, prying into your secrets. You'd see what it's like to have a filthy yerk in your, and they have this whole conversation. But that I thought was really a great reminder of what it is to 
have a yerk in your in your mm-hmm. head how violating it is mm-hmm. to have all of your thoughts and feelings open to a stranger mm-hmm. and not just that but to have you know your physical body controlled by that same stranger and that that sense of violation I think is is so appalling to me and it's much more obvious in this book as in six mm-hmm. than it is in a lot of the Animorphs books where you can kind of skate by what exactly is happening to the controllers most of the time mm-hmm. um, and then you get this and you're like oh it's it's so bad I also something really upsets me about the the sort of casual like oh well Allison's body is attracted to him so it's okay Ugh. right like it's, it's you know they're it's bad there can't be consent in this situation. No, it and can, and it was bad. It's, it's really messed up. No. Yeah, that's definitely not something, like, as a kid, mm-hmm. like, you just, like, don't even think about it. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about it. You wouldn't think about it. But, yeah. Um, but, no, you're, you're right. There's also, there is something fundamentally disturbing about a book with such a villainous protagonist just because like the way we read stories like you totally root for the protagonist mm-hmm. all the time yeah, yeah, yeah. like maybe we wouldn't if the protagonist were actively opposed to characters we already loved like if she were fighting the animorphs we might not be rooting for her but like i i noticed this in 6 when uh Temrash infested Jake and i mm-hmm. and he was trying to like get the escape, other animorphs. Right. He was trying to escape, and I was like, "Yeah, you can do it." Oh no, wait! I don't want you to do it. Like, <laughs> I, like there were a few paragraphs where I found myself reading for him just because mm-hmm. he was in the body of our protagonist. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have this phenomenon of like, man, I really want Edris to come out of this alive. Wow, she's a really terrible person with like no redeeming value. <laughs> okay. I do really like, as you were saying earlier, kind of Ava's arc, mm-hmm. which is very similar and. I think is a, is a good indication of how well written these books are that you do have that like oh maybe I maybe this person is redeemable mm-hmm. oh uh, no Mm-mm, not at all great you can also see a little bit of that like midway through when during that memory dump when uh, Garof mm-hmm. is uh, oh, yeah. watching all these things happening and uh, Idris has kind of a little breakdown and says that humans are complex gets are barely sentient taxons are mad beasts horkbeard you take them you see them from the start as intellectually inferior primitive you can shield yourself but humans. I was the first. No one knew what humans held in their minds. No one knew. They weren't inferiors. They were impossible to dismiss as sub-yerk. Not when you knew them. You can see that she's so close. Like, she could have had the revelation there. Mm. I know. Yeah. Well, that's where Essam goes, mm-hmm. more or less. Eventually. And she, yeah, and she takes and the other route. It's sort of like, the thing that that made me think of is just how how fascist the yerks are, right? It's <laughs> like, they're, they're, they so believe in their inherent superiority. Mm-hmm. You know, they do the thing where like, oh, the Andalites are so we so strong, but we will crush them. You know, like, kind of doublespeak. And the way that she's like, but of course you'd have to admit that humans are like almost as good, right? And then she even couches that as like, oh, well, like, Allison Kim, I got along with, but like, she's obviously the exception, yeah, right? This yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that I have to care about the other five billion humans, right? right? There's also this Yerk aspect of, you know, uh, Edris gets to the planet, to planet Earth, and it's like, why are there all these communications? You, The only communications you need are communications yeah. from your superior officers telling you what to do. Progress reports from below and <laughs> logistics. Those are the three things. Yeah. She's totally unfamiliar with fiction. And there's a whole thing when in a conversation with Allison where she's saying that humans have way too much to do. You should learn to live without these distractions. Yeah. Right. And she's like, Jenny Lyons doesn't have an occupation? What? <laughs> Okay, so this, all these things that we just said, I think is excellent fodder for our escort 
Yurik War Guild theory. Yeah. Right? So I, I had that in why my is Edris not familiar with fiction? Why does she think everyone has to have an occupation? It's because Selp Nyarpool, all War Guild Yurks. Mm. So there are probably, as we know from the escort world, Fiction exists. It can haunt places, sure. and there are probably it really exists. There are probably you know haunted fictional characters mm-hmm. in some York pools back on the homeworld. But uh-huh. Edris could also be someone who was who was born in space, not born on the planet, mm-hmm. um, and is almost certainly one of these uh, guild warriors. Yeah, that does yeah. sound right. And I- maybe SM isn't. You could yeah. Be. yeah. There was a great point where they're watching or getting these sort of television data dumps, and she has the realization that they're they're all lies. <laughs> and it reminded me so much of Galaxy Quest. <laughs> like lies. It was so funny. Yeah. Okay. That's one of my favorite like bits of the sci-fi is when they're oh, like yeah. assessing the humans, like mm-hmm, which yeah. class of species do they fall into? Yeah. Like how dangerous are they gonna be? Visser one is like if five billion humans each shot one gun, they would destroy us. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's very persuasive. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, and there's so many things I want to talk about. Thank goodness we're going to have two that's episodes. A lot here. But this, the, the logistics of like, do they want open war or do they want this slow infestation? The Yerks or the Emperors? The, the Yerks. Yerks. There's this sort of debate throughout the whole book, really, because Edris arrives and is like, okay, we want to, these might be a class four species where they're, they exist in large numbers, are great hosts, but they're too dangerous, or they might be class five where they're not too dangerous and we can conquer them. And they land in the middle of this war and see, I guess, the Americans shooting very effectively. And who knows even what war it is? Who knows what year it is? Yeah. And, and Essam's like, are they, are they class four? And and Edris is like, no, I'm going to find a way. And she finds a way through this slow infestation. But there is this open question of like, like, Ray, you have been asking this entire series, why the heck are they doing it this way? Why don't they just take us over? And they certainly could at least do it a lot more aggressively and, you know, bring Yurks in their little baggies to people's homes and just put them in their ears. But they have chosen this slow infestation. And now in this book, you learn that it's a little bit disingenuous like, the reason when uh, Visser 1, or Ava, I can't remember which one, has this conversation with Marco, where she's like, uh, Visser 1's the reason that we aren't at open war. And Marco's like, no, that doesn't make sense, because if open war would work, then she would be in favor of it. And Ava's like, well, she has these children. Right. The reason yeah. she doesn't want to just blow up human, like, Earth, basically, is that her kids might get killed. And, like, that, like, the existence of those two children is the reason the Yurks aren't at open war with us. <laughs> but then at the end, like, the Council of Thirteen also decides against open war because they're like, oh, but that will make the Andalites come faster. We don't want to have to fight 30 dome ships in orbit, so we're, like, doing this subtle invasion. That is a sensible reaction. Yeah. yeah. So Also... I'm so excited about this, like, new Andalite fleet thing that gets announced here. It's like... Yeah! I really want Visser 1 to screw up. <laughs> I'm excited about that and also about the, um... What's the name of the new aliens? And- Andaris? The Desbody? Oh, the Anatis. Oh, the, no- the Anatis. The Anatis yeah. yeah. system. The Anatis system, uh, because now I have more things to add to my predictions. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. Yeah. Need fodder. Exactly. <laughs> Book 37 is coming up. You need more things to put in it. I mean, it's going to be good. I also want to talk about how old Idris is. 
How old is Idris? There's no way of telling for sure, but like her number is 562, while Esplan's is 9466. Does that mean anything? Well, the double six is because they're twins, so yeah. it might just be 946. <clears throat> Do we have any other... So we have a bunch of other Selpnire numbers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we don't know what it means, really. No. And she says that she's young for a subvisor, but, but like, Esplin was a subvisor at, at three ah, years old. Ah, true. But was that in 75 or, like, 1990? <laughs> Aren't those the same year, Jenny? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Only when you have a parallel universe. Tiny. Wait, can I just, since you brought that up, sorry to go on a tangent after we just said we were talking about this other thing. <laughs> One thing that I absolutely love about Visser 1 and this whole book is that it does not intersect with the supernatural or like bonkers magic stuff that the series deals with oh. at all. It's yeah. purely That's a true. courtroom drama Political thriller intrigue thing. Mm-hmm. Visser one tends it's to like be the mind, the mind technology, but that's about it. Right, right. Visser one tends to be like very down to earth and yeah. like even to the She's point the where first one who came down to earth. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> You're welcome. When she talks about the events of the Endelite Chronicles, she's like, you know. And then, you know, the Skritna went to the Taxon homeworld. I don't know why. And then a Taxon ship took off. I don't know why. I've there's, never heard of a time matrix. I'm not like going to bring up the word time matrix like, at all. Then some other events no. happened. Their sequence is not well recorded. She's like, yes, no, it isn't. We also don't know what happened to those five years. I'm with right. you on this, Visser. And then, like, even though, you know, Ava, like, uh, I, I still think there were enough references to God and hell and stuff that I think the Ava's a Catholic thing <laughs> yeah. is, is definitely true. But she's like, she's like, I know that somebody like put my son in your way to like mess with yeah. you. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is kind of reminding me about the like whole Elmas thing going on. But Visser One just doesn't have anything to do with that, and it's really refreshing to have yeah. a little bit yeah. of like the more sort of like uh, space opera e type stuff, yes. yeah. and not the good versus evil type stuff. Visser One and I both think the time matrix never comes up. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if Visser 1 got the Time Matrix. What a disaster. Be, oh, yes. no. It'd be bad. She would be actually good at using it in a like, twisted, way. messed up way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she but, would take some ridiculous risks that might well pay off. Would she just create a pocket universe with her kids in it and then go visit it sometimes while she rules the rest of the galaxy? Yes. That's a, yeah. yeah uh-huh. that sounds... Bad thing. I think that she would try and show up at every important like event in York military history and insert herself <laughs> into the the like timeline so that she is the one true hero she's of all. the emperor mm-hmm. eventually yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. very ambitious I did once see a fic where she just plain went back to Ciro's uh, time <laughs> and infested him whoa oh, I want to read that, that. why Ciro okay. did what he did <gasps> I love it so whoa. good okay so other stuff about Edris's age oh yeah, oh, yeah. so she it, since it's unclear how much time passes in this book, it's hard to say anything. I don't know what young for a subvisor means. Because, like, Esplin was a subvisor at, at, like, three years old. Oh, was yeah. Was that young? I don't know, but also he was, like, the early days. They just created the rank, so it might have, yeah. like, changed after that. But we do think it seems like he's older than Edris. In some ways, but also, like, there's the fact that she was mentored by someone who's on the Castle of Thirteen now. Oh, that's and true. She yeah, says he didn't come into the story at all, though. I the backstory? Him. He's just part of, like, the sense of just a larger world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. She has a larger backstory. And she uses the phrase, a perfect still pool lagoon at some point to talk about how good a situation looks. I really <laughs> liked that. Yeah. Because, like, at some point, uh, Esplin says that he was born after 
they left for the homeworld. He doesn't know what the, the pools are like. People talk about them nostalgically. Mm-hmm. But she she does use that phrase. Good point. Oh, so maybe she is original. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, interesting. I really liked, um, at one point she says, we must plunge boldly into the shallow end of the pool, Essam. Which is, of course, the opposite of how humans would talk about it. Like, we have to dive into the deep end. But for them, the shallow end is dangerous because you're near the surface. Also, literally what they do when they land in Hollywood. They crash into a pool. (laughs) Do they crash into the shallow end? I was thinking when we were talking about Visser One as an unsympathetic or an unsympathetic narrator, but like you end up having sympathy with her because she's mm-hmm. the narrator. I feel like there are also some gender effects where like I want to mm-hmm. like her more because she is this like female leader. Mm-hmm. And um and there's also like she's Marco's mother, which makes her like inherently a little bit more sympathetic. And the gender stuff in this book was really interesting. At some point, she's, it was. she says, like, humans have two genders, like Horkbajir and Andalites. Mm-hmm. And then when they land in Hollywood and she decides to take Jenny Lyons because she seems younger and healthier, she's like, in that way, I became female and Essen became male. She mentioned earlier that her Horkbajir host before that was male, too. Oh, okay. So maybe she, like, changed gender. But, like, does she take on, like, should we even calling her she? I don't know. The book is in the first person, so... But she, uh, refers to her as her. Oh, okay. Instead like, of they. Yeah. So the Yerks don't call each other by some sort of neutral pronoun. They mm-hmm. use the pronouns of the host, I guess? Well, they said just a few pages after that that um, good Yerks adopt the characteristics of their hosts huh. when um, Asim is shaking his host's head. Hmm. Oh, so, yeah. So like, maybe this is also part of it. Interesting. Yeah. Gender is not something they inherently identify with, and so... Like, oh, okay, I'm female now. Would she deliberately take female hosts after that? Because it seems like she may be, well, not entirely with Lord David Altman. She says she doesn't like him. She thinks he's like a wasteland. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because he doesn't seem to be very smart. That didn't seem to be connected to gender. But yeah, she went from Jenny. She went to Allison. Then she went to Ava. Those were all choices she made, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because since the history of the Yurk Empire is so short, they Mm -hmm. have this preconceived idea about how you should infest people different kinds of people yeah but very little experience given the diversity mm-hmm. of creatures in the universe with like what mind sharing is like and viscer one uses that in her defense she says oh well you know human the human experience is so much richer i wasn't prepared after being in a get in hork but this sort of idea that like oh yeah you take on the mannerisms of like uh, people, it seems like good advice if your host is simple, pass right? Or, oh. But but because of the the sort of bleed between the host and the yerk, mm-hmm. there there's probably are unanticipated dangers to doing that. So yeah. I kind of like the idea that she's mm-hmm. like part of this yeah. becoming to identify as a mother is like, well, I'll just kind of do what Allison would do, and like I'm kind of and the way that mm-hmm. she says is like I made a bet with Allison or whatever, but. Allison is, like, actively manipulating her uh-huh. into becoming more human than Yurk, right? And so, yeah. like, Visser 1 is... Either Visser 1 is inherently susceptible to that as an individual, or all Yurks are probably unprepared for yeah. the ways humans fight yeah. back. I I have to say, like, there must be more Yurks on Earth who are having experiences like mm-hmm. addresses in this book. Like, yeah. He, like yeah. controllers who are you know married to humans and do let things bleed over, mm-hmm. and 
uh, Visor 3 says something about, like, well, we have tons of humans who pass, you know, yurks who pass for human without reproducing, but, like, there probably are some who do get pregnant. Yeah. Or who already had children. Oh, certainly. There are a lot of those. Yeah. Like Chapman. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope they continue to reproduce, because otherwise, like, <laughs> otherwise it's not a useful controller species, but also otherwise, like, the birth rate is going to plummet in, like, weird mm. pockets of California. <laughs> I mean, at this yeah. point, it might be, like, reproducing is so energy-intensive and time-intensive and, like, ties people up. Um, that, like, there are enough humans who are reproducing on their own that we don't need the controllers to do it. Like, maybe mm. they have... They could just harvest a few here and there. It, it does seem like there are probably Yerks. Like, we were wondering in book two, like, Chapman seems to have some... Chapman's Yerk seems to have some sympathy for him. Is Chapman's Yerk at all attached to Melissa? Yeah. Who knows? Mm. Are Chapman and his wife, are those Yerks attached to each other? Or is it just, like, they're just a, you know, a fake married couple? Yeah. Like we were talking about like with the, the spies. Yeah. yeah. This is such a bad idea. <laughs> like, just this whole invasion thing. Mm, mm-hmm. Terrible idea. Robot bodies? They should get on it. Robot bodies! Yeah. Escort! Well, the escorts seem to have fixed this, where, like, they do embrace their hosts' yes. lives and experience, because they made these hosts for themselves. And escort! They aren't... They also had memory-sharing technology, which these Yerks have. Yeah. Well, one of the weird things about the Yerks is, like, they... They're pretending to live these lives, at least the controllers on Earth, in order to, like, pass. But they're, who they would be as their real selves is, like, a little unclear. Like, mm-hmm. all we ever see them do is fight this war. They don't yeah. have any entertainment. They don't, like, we, we, yeah. we talked about, like, what was the life like mm-hmm. in the pools back on the your homeworld. And- we saw that, like, in book two, Chapman and his wife would just, like, sit staring at nothing when they didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That weird. And I don't want to, like, get too guild essentialist or anything, um, because, like, we don't really even know that that's There's the thing. There's always overlap. But, like, like, I feel like these Yerks, like, their empire kind of grew, and they all they ha- are doing is fighting a war, and they haven't figured out the rest of life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'm just, this is, like, my headcanon, so it totally, it totally <laughs> tracks that it's a war guild thing. I guess, do we want to talk a little bit about our impressions of the Council of Thirteen. Oh, because yeah. I guess yeah. I guess maybe the Council of Thirteen is a thing that exists on the Yurk homeworld, and they rule over all the Yurks. Or maybe it's kind of a Yurk, a new Yurk Empire thing. They couldn't but, be this. They couldn't be on the Yurk homeworld now. Right. Like they must be located it's somewhere located. else. Right. But it's a super interesting peek behind the curtain, and mm-hmm. I kind of love everything about it. Yeah. yeah. Go on. I don't know. I mean... They have clothes. Oh, yeah. Aliens with clothes. Aliens with clothes. They have the the black robes with red trim and... Guys, let's go as three members of the Council of Thirteen for Halloween this year. Done. (laughs) Next year. They have... um, So they're Hork-Bajir and Taxon and Geds? Or are there no guests? So there are some robed figures. Robed figures that are mysteries. I guess they're humans or something. Right. So... Or like a Lyran or something. Right. Like... (gasps) Oh. Um, but so the taxons are like Jabba the Hutt sized and they're like yeah. constantly yeah. like eating things. It's like, I just, yeah. I love a new iteration on taxon <laughs> grossness. I'm so here for this. That is very fun and interesting. Cause like Idris hates the idea. Of being a taxon. Yeah. Idris is real offensive to the taxons many like, times. It's like sparing the members of the council of 13. No, You're like, nope, you just about But at them. the same time, they're like. Instead of saying we took over the Taxons, it's like, and the Taxons, we have an uneasy alliance with they're them, or like they're our allies, right? Uh-huh. Which is a really interesting way 
like it's giving the Texans a lot of credit in some way, right? And they talk about a Texan insurgency. Yeah. And like, I want to. Yeah. So that's still happening. Yeah. Well, we don't know what year it was that that was happening. It could have been 1977, or it could have 80, been 89, 1981, 1981. 1982, <laughs> 1983. Oh, it's none of those years. The 80s just didn't happen. <laughs> there, there are no 80s in the Animorphs worlds. Yeah. They all got put into a packet. They went with Germany. <laughs> yeah. What else about the Council of Thirteen? I, just there's so many good details that make me want to know more. Garof is the counterintelligence uh, specialist, yeah. which means each of the 13 members has their own specialty, and there can be a whole taxonomy <laughs> of like creepy things that they do, right. and we don't learn any of the others, so it's just right. whatever our headcanon wants can be. I wanted to learn so much more about this because it reminded me of um, V for Vendetta. You know, Ooh. where they don't know where the people are, and it's like each of them has one thing that they're responsible yes. for. Yes, yeah, 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 like yeah. The, And I thought, okay, so we know one of them. Are we going to learn what like the other ones are in charge well, of? Well, one of and... them is the emperor, but we don't know who. The secret emperor. The secret emperor. It's hard to, I, I don't buy this at all. I no. don't understand why it makes it harder. Who cares who the emperor is? You have like... to kill all 13 of them to kill the emperor. Okay. Statistics, that's not <laughs> how statistics work. It's sick logic. <laughs> Unless they're, <gasps> what if the hooded figures are Helmicrons? What? All the Helmicrons in the world. <laughs> it's a hundred Helmicrons standing on each other's shoulders. <laughs> um, can we just really guys, the Helmicron reference in this book was Oh my gosh, so it was good. killed me. Please, please read it. Please tell us what it is. It was so good. So, um... <laughs> Also, you know, this is like one of the only times the Helmicrons is referenced and it's Kay Applegate again. Oh, yeah. They're into the Helmicrons, yeah. So they, uh, Visitor 3 is going on this whole like rant about how um, we are the Yurk Empire. We are not a race of sneaks and spies. We are rulers, conquerors. And she waits a beat for that. They're all like reacting like she's like, they're politicians. They're into this. They love this speech. And then uh, she waits for the echoes to to die away and says, you know, I was wrong about Fister 3. He's not a dupe of the Andalites. Rather, with all this bluster and raving, he sounds as if he's been spending his time with Helmicrons. (laughs) 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 Crushing. (laughs) I love this so much because... Who would not use Helmicron as an insult oh, if you yeah. knew about Helmicron? Absolutely right. Would. I love the existence of this kind of like culture where like everyone's like, <laughs> oh, no. and like the way Visser Three when he sees the Helmicron ship is just like, what? Oh no, Helmicron! <laughs> it's like finding out you have bed bugs. Oh yeah, oh they are yeah. bed bugs. <laughs> The, yeah, so another are. dynamic on the Yerk's Council of Thirteen military tribunal system mm-hmm. is how like the game is always rigged and like they're mm-hmm. like they uh, already know how they want to find right. So it ends with okay, yeah. Visser one and Visser three. You are both guilty of treason and you are sentenced to starvation, Kindred array starvation. However, your sentences are suspended until you do these things for yeah. us. Uh. And we learn that Visser one already had her crimes forgiven because she discovered a class 5 species. Uh-huh. So it's like, I don't I don't know what kind of, I don't know if there's a name for this kind of corruption, but it's like, we have all of these, we have so many rules that you're bound to break one, and we'll hold it against you if unless, you're, if you're doing yeah. well, you can break the rules with impunity. You can uh-huh. kill your subordinates, you know, whatever, whatever. But as soon as you're not doing well, then we have the blackmail to take you, take uh-huh. you out. So it's mm-hmm. like, the people at on sort top. of a fake system of regulations. Exactly. They just they have, employ they when all it's the, useful. They have all the control over everyone below them. And so, of it's course, like they're controllers. this is the optimal outcome for them, is to get both Visser 1 yeah. and Visser 3 even further 
in their grasp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now if they ever do anything wrong, they be like, oh, well, we already found you guilty of treason. You didn't do what we asked you to do. Death. Bye. Yeah, they do say that, like, any Yurk with rank is going to have huge deltas in their closets. And that's why you don't have them doing memory dumps. Yeah. Yeah, and she's like, you don't get to be on the council without having done stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a great system. The only thing that I have left, the brain contains its own traitor passage, mm-hmm. I want to read really and talk cool. about a little bit. Okay, so the the split brain thing, which mm-hmm. of course is a part of human biology, and I guess I had not thought to question whether it was part of Andalite or Horkpajir biology. The Yurks obviously don't have lobes because they are slugs. This one has just infested the first human, and it's like, wait, but why are there two halves to this brain, and it's only joined by this tiny thing? She's like, it was incredible. The second half of the brain was almost a mirror image, but not. It could have functioned on its own, if necessary, and yet it was in some ways radically different in its memories, its sensory interpretation, even its will. Two almost entirely functional brains in one skull, communicating across a channel of nerves. Not a fully redundant system, almost a second, different brain. And she's like, is it because they're specialized? No, not really. It was then that I knew that I was seeing something new. This brain worked by dialectic. Each half of the brain saw and heard and smelled and touched a slightly different world. Each tended towards specialization, but not a hard, fast split. The left half had more language, but not all the language. The right side had more spatial perception, but not all of the spatial perception. Confusion, disorder, illogic. This mind could argue with itself. This mind could see the same event in different ways. It was insanity, a democratic brain arguing within itself with no sure certain control, only a sort of uneasy compromise, a consensus of disputatious elements. This brain contained its own traitor. Disputatious is a great word. Did not also, pick up on that. Wow. I, yeah. I just, I genuinely love everything about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is such a good metaphor for, mm-hmm. like, like a like a mechanical description of the brain uh-huh. as an analogy for the human experience, right? Like, yeah, it's certainly founded a little bit in neuroscience, but it it doesn't a little bit. it doesn't yeah. matter. It's just yeah. a it's just a great <laughs> metaphor for mm-hmm. the dialogue that goes on within everybody's head. Well, because she's like, yeah, this dialogue of like, should I, should I not, and it improves decisions, but also it, like the paralysis, the paralysis of internal disagreement. She's like, it's not worth it. It doesn't improve yeah, them that much. Just mm-hmm. contrasted with like. You know, she's a monomaniacal narcissist, right? Just where she's, like, offended. She's like, the brain contains its own traitor? And then when you think about that, you're like, yes, and that is great. Like, it is so great that we're all our own traitors, right? Uh Like, I actually, Uh I want to own that as, like, a thing that I am proud of as a human, right? It's like, I, I really like, I really like this passage. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that it is backed up by just, like, the general how <laughs> aliens are written that they don't uh, debate with themselves. They aren't yeah. making any decision. Because even here, towards the end, after she's killed all the people she loves, he just is going, oh, I'm lonely. I feel regret. I have to keep going. Because she still has that. She, she has Yeah, she definitely like that, seems but... to have multiple points of view within herself. But it is also still really cool. <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure that's not how the brain works like when you have then you're like maybe i should do this but maybe i shouldn't do this it's not because the two halves of your brain are arguing oh no definitely other. not but so there is something there is something to it that's mechanically realistic because the way an evolved system uh works is through redundancy mm-hmm. i don't i don't know a whole lot about the sort of like specializing the two hemispheres thing but if you use an algorithm to evolve some kind of logic 
process. It is not as efficient as one that you would code by hand. It's mm-hmm. full of a lot of messy and redundant stuff, and it, it includes, you know, quote-unquote mutations mm-hmm. that don't matter or may even get in the way or have uh, secondary effects that are not intended, right? Mm-hmm. So a Hork-Bajir brain, which uh, the Yerks are all familiar with, was in effect coded by the Arn. And so it's it's totally plausible that it actually is... Um, you know, the brain is full of discrete locations that all have one function, and they're mm-hmm. all. It's, it's maybe the hork horkbajir brain is full of like uh, microservices that are all communicating to each other, <laughs> and it's like a very nice software architecture, yeah. right? Like that's not how evolution builds. Well, yeah, because systems. she was like, "Oh, I found the language center. This doesn't make sense. Oh, the language centers are dispersed," and she's coming from a horkbajir brain where probably they just built a language center that was all together, and that's why they have yeah. a relatively simple grasp of language. I want to know how Axe experienced morphing into human, oh. and whether any of the kind of talking to himself, it, it, you know, the ability of the human brain to have this democratic process was part of like oh. what makes him so bad at being a human, or whether <laughs> it's just that you know he's leading into those instincts as we've discussed before. <laughs> when when Esplin infests Alaron for the first time, he's like. Andalites have a hundred brains, one superior brain, and 99 <laughs> other brains that they look down upon. <laughs> it explains so much about the Andalites. Uh-huh. But, oh, yeah, man. we've talked a little bit about how it would make sense to have different species have fundamentally different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. That is not what we actually see in the narrative, mm-hmm. because all of the characters, like, are fundamentally types of human, right? Like, they them. are all human characters, even if they have a completely different species background. Yeah. I do think it's this was actually a, a little bit of a '90s moment because um, this is the '90s are pre a lot of the neuroplasticity studies that have been done yeah, in the last 20 years, um, and part of I think that actually she does a great job of describing what we have learned through these studies that there aren't just the hemispheres are not discrete centers. You know, mm-hmm. you don't get all of the artistic on one side and all the math on the other, but that they they go back and forth these different you know skills. Um, but that part of the reason for the division is the ability of the brain to repair itself in a way that we didn't think was possible 20 years ago. Um, it's still a really good description. Do you have any predictions about Tobias laying the time matrix <laughs> and the elements hatching out of it? This is no, part of your prediction. Because once again, the time matrix doesn't come into it at all. <laughs> no time matrix Great. doesn't no time exist matrix. as far as the Elvis Chronicles are concerned. Okay, it's like Germany. It's and a lot like the 80s. Like Germany, okay. Or the 80s. Yeah. No time matrix. It's nice when you write a book series and can have your own headcanon. Like, you know, there's just that hole in <laughs> yeah. Western Europe and the 70s went straight into the 90s. We skipped the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Joyce, do you have any parting remarks or wisdom for the anamorphology listeners? Not on the spot like this. I, I'm sure I'll remember and <laughs> That's leave fair. 10 comments, though, when oh, I Oh, thank goodness. Listeners, post your wisdom in the comments. Yeah. We will read That's where all of Joy's wisdom will be. <laughs> thank you yeah. so much for joining us and for this all was of so your great. comments. Well, thank you for having me. It was so exciting. So glad we could You're get you on. Great. It has been thank a you. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> And for all of you listening at home, we'll have more to say about Fisser in our second episode in which we get very granular and overly picky. All right. Take care. See you in the comments section. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends.
And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. What it all means. The dinosaur just fell over.